Hello, this is Dr. Betty Rubinowitz, NextGen Healthcare's Chief Medical Officer and Principal with NextGen Advisors. I'm joined today by Graham Brown and Dr. Marty Lustig, my colleagues in the NextGen Advisors. Welcome, Graham. Good morning. And good morning, Marty. Thank you. Hi. The Affordable Care Act reaffirmed the centrality of primary care as the foundation supporting the entire American healthcare system. Strong primary care is associated with improvements in overall health outcomes for both persons and populations, including but not limited to broader access, lower costs, greater health equity, and higher quality. I recently came across a report written in collaboration between the Robert Graham Center, the American Board of Family Medicine, and IBM Watson Health titled Primary Care in the United States, a Chart Book of Facts and Statistics, which I found fascinating. It provides a current updated snapshot of the state of primary care in this country. Our conversation today will center on some of the information in this report. So let's get started. For every thousand citizens of the U.S., numbers support the fact that 800 of those people report uh, some symptoms uh, during the year. 327 consider seeking medical care. 217 of them visit a physician's office, of which 113 visit a primary care physician. 104 visit a specialist. 65 visit a complementary or alternative medical care provider. 21 visit a hospital-based outpatient clinic. 14 of those people receive health services at home, 13 visit an emergency department, eight are hospitalized, and less than one person is hospitalized in an academic uh, medical center. So Graham, what comes to mind hearing these uh, statistics? Well, first of all, I think it's a really fascinating way to kind of break down the numbers and look at how the U.S. population is really accessing care. The fact that more people seek primary care uh, than any other health uh, type of health service, I think is really indicative of the role that primary care plays. There's a surprising number of individuals who experience symptoms, but really only a portion of those individuals then consider seeking care. Um, and then of those amounts that go to seek care, really only a third of them are ending up with a primary care provider. What was also a little surprising for me is that, uh, you know, 65 of the 1,000 are visiting some kind of complementary provider or alternative medical care provider. So that kind of suggests there's maybe not a strong understanding within the public of the role that primary care plays in both preventive care and chronic condition management. I guess one other thought that was uh, a little surprising related to this is given how large academic medical centers are really considered very powerful entities and have a, a significant role in terms of healthcare policy, training, um, and how the medical community is prepared, that really a very limited amount of care is being provided in those environments. And that was uh, surprising to me. I would have thought it was more. A couple of other thoughts I'd have on this. As far as the academic medical centers, this only refers to hospitalizations. And so I do think academic medical centers, you know, having been in practice around them, they have long tentacles. You know, as a practicing pediatrician out in the community, I would count on the expertise of those specialists at the academic medical center 
you know, to sometimes not even to see my patients, but just to give me advice on how to take care of them. So I do think that they have a large impact, even though they may only represent a small percentage of visits. The other thing for me is these statistics really reinforce the concept of the pyramid of, of care that the overwhelming majority of care in, is self-care, which are the people who have symptoms but don't even seek any health care services at all. And that then primary care within the delivery system is really at the foundation. And you see, as you go up that pyramid, it narrows to fewer and fewer people making their way up. And ultimately, we want the we we want people to stay at the low end of the pyramid to be able to live their lives and not have to spend a lot of time and resources in the healthcare system. That's the best outcomes they could hope for. So, if we can keep that foundation strong then that provides the most value. Graham, you made an observation about the complementary uh, visits. And this is a trend we've been seeing consistently. I wasn't surprised by it. It's striking, but it has been coming for a while. And I think it has a lot to do with some of the struggles of primary care to keep access convenient, to have flexible hours, to have less barriers to entry into primary care, to have providers, complementary providers, open, wide open and willing to, to see people versus the struggle in some urban settings to actually find a primary care physician who's taking patients. So I think this number is a bit of a wake up for a primary care as a system and as a specialty. And, and I'm glad you emphasize it because it is it is quite striking that that full half of the people who seek primary care seek complementary uh, care as well. Now, what we don't know is how overlapping these circles are. You know, do these people see an alternative clinician and a family physician? We also don't know, Marty, to your point, what symptoms people are experiencing. Is it a headache? Is it a? But but I think your point is well taken. So. Marty, the, the report focused quite a bit on the co uh, compositions of the primary care workforce. What were your t key takeaways as it pertains to the size of the primary care workforce in the U.S.? Yeah, so if you look at the absolute numbers, they reported just under 230,000 primary care physicians. But I think the maybe the more important thing is, is that only represents about a third of the overall physician workforce in the United States. And that, you know, falls short of the 40% that's recommended by the Council on Graduate Medical Education. So there is a, a gap there in terms of those who are choosing versus um, those that are actually going in. And you know, some of the statistics, certainly from the beginning of this century, suggest that there had been drops in medical graduates choosing family medicine, and that's disturbing. Although I think some of the more most recent data suggests that there's been some significant uptick in the last five years or so. So maybe there's a silver lining in that cloud. And interestingly, these numbers also did not reflect on foreign grads these numbers were for U.S. trained physicians, and obviously much of the workforce is being supported by foreign grads uh, selecting uh, primary care and, and doing so quite successfully. So 
Are you worried about these numbers? Yeah, it's certainly, it's an interesting question because if you actually just look at the raw numbers, and you, particularly if you combine these with NPs and PAs, where we are seeing that less than half of nurse practitioners are going into primary care and only a little over a third of, of physician's assistants are. But when you combine all those numbers together, we have one primary care provider for every close to eight or 900 people in the United States, which as a ratio on the face of it appears would not be concerning. Um, but we know that not all of these people practice full time that in that a lot of primary care trained uh, physicians and others don't actually practice primary care. They may be working in urgent care centers, they may be working as hospitalists and, and in other non-direct primary care service roles. So in the, when you take all those things into account, you can conclude that we really do face a significant challenge in having adequate primary care coverage. Absolutely. And Graham, much has been said about the graying of the primary care workforce. How impactful do you think this uh, factor is, is and is going to be in the, in the upcoming years? I certainly think it's an important factor. You know, I, we've been watching for 20 years the kind of the aging of the primary care workforce and the demographics certainly are supporting that trend. Most primary care physicians, you know, start practice kind of in their late 20s when they finish their residency and their uh, medical education, and they remain in the workforce for about a 40-year period. So they're retiring in their 60s, uh, mid-60s. And I think the increased interest that uh, was demonstrated in the early 90s shows us, you know, 30 years later where we are in terms of that peak of physicians that are in practice. But, you know, now we're at this point where nearly a quarter of primary care physicians are 60 years and older. So there really is a, a pending boom of retirements here that I think has been on the radar of uh, healthcare organizations for a number of years. And to me, part of what Marty was just speaking to around how, how the workforce is then adapting and how provider organizations are looking at the role of physician assistants and nurse practitioners to extend the clinical team to really supplement the graying of the physician cohort is trying to uh, address some of those concerns. At the same time, really working to encourage providers that are going into medical school to continue to pursue primary care. But there's a number of factors that are preventing that from occurring in terms of the actual work and the practice itself, um, along with compensation and other challenges uh, in terms of where that care is needed between urban and rural settings and where people want to live. Yeah, along those lines of the changing model of care, there was an interesting study out of the University of California that modeled you know, what a physician practicing primary care on average, if they worked 43 hours a week seeing patients and 48 weeks a year, that they could see that they could take care of about 900 patients. But if they delegated to other levels of care, those functions that didn't have to be done by them as a physician, they could take care of 2,000 people. So this whole idea of really maximizing the value of the team 
and figure is is imperative for us given where we stand in terms of uh, the aging of the of the physician population. So, Marty, to in my mind, what you said is exactly what has been one of the downfalls or the challenges for primary care is that we have expected primary care physicians to take care of 2,000 patients without delegating anything. Right. So no wonder people are burnt out, challenged, very tired, stretched very thin, uh, because we haven't materially created a high-functioning care team model that allows people, and it's very cliched, and I'm going to say it anyway, uh, to, to work to the top of their license. And there's, we still have a, a grand opportunity there. So Marty, what does the report reveal about the gender distribution of uh, primary care physicians? Right. So we've seen, and I think this has been a pattern uh, based on the report across all industrialized nations, that women are increasingly in the primary care physician workforce. And in recent decades, the proportion of primary care who are women has doubled, or close to doubled at least, and certainly is outpacing what we're seeing in non-primary care specialties. I know in my own specialty of pediatrics, um, women far outnumber men at this point. And I do think, you know, my earlier comment about people working part-time and not being full-time is partly related to women increasingly joining this workforce, although it's not just true of women. I think the the younger generation of physicians is more likely to work less than full-time in their clinical role. Absolutely. It's interesting that the University of Rochester's primary care residency programs, a majority uh, women have been for the last few years. There have been a couple of classes that really are overwhelming majority uh, women in primary care. And if we adapt and adjust and allow women to both parent and have a balance between work and life, there is such an opportunity because in many ways, I think the, the style that women practice in is highly suited for primary care. So uh, I, for, on many levels, uh, welcome uh, this trend. Graham, what do we know about the geographic uh, distribution of primary care physicians in this country? You know, the, the data presented here in this report, it's interesting. It's from 2019, so it's pretty current. And what we see is that primary care physicians are better represented in rural areas than specialist physicians. So one kind of element to consider there. And then within the primary care physician groups, family physicians and general practice physicians are more highly concentrated in the rural areas compared to geriatricians, internists, or pediatricians. Um, and so we're seeing more of those practices, geriatricians, internists, uh, pediatricians in highly concentrated urban areas to a similar extent that we see specialists. So this broader dynamic of the need within rural communities and the types of providers that they're able to actually attract into those communities and to practice there. I think this, uh, this report really substantiates what we see are the trends and it provides some data to uh, kind of recognize that what we feel and what we hear from clients and different provider organizations that we work with around their recruitment challenges are indeed backed up by some of the numbers. 
Absolutely. Do you have a sense what some of the implications of this pattern of distribution uh, could be? Well, I think there's the potential for a contribution to some health disparities when you think about access to different types of providers and, you know, needing uh, needing a geriatrician to really work with an elderly patient on their complex medication regimen or some of their needs as their their overall health declines. Being able to access that individual in a in a rapid and meaningful way or for long-term continuity of care, if that care isn't available, it may indeed create some health disparities. When we think from a policy perspective, it's important then to create incentives to ensure that as graduates are coming out of medical school, that there is an incentive to support rural primary care um, and that there are specific initiatives in, um, to really drive that growth within the rural populations to, to serve folks that are living in a rural environment. The, the pandemic has interestingly cast a bit more of a spotlight on this as we see the movement of individuals, sometimes out of cities and into the surrounding communities. And uh, the workforce hasn't necessarily kept up with the trend of the last several years and the last year in itself, maybe just putting a little bit more pressure in that uh, domain. One, one other thing, I think, when you talk about this geographic pattern and disparities, there's a, a risk here of missing the issues within an urban setting, because although there are high concentrations of the various primary care specialists in, in urban settings, they are not evenly distributed throughout those settings. And so it's common in, in urban settings that the wealthier non-minority areas of, of the urban area have, are, have plentiful primary care, whereas the minority disadvantaged communities really struggle to get access to primary care. And that is a huge challenge is that we don't match our service capacity to the needs of the community. Yeah, and, and I must say that something that comes to mind, and, and a while back I had written a blog about rural medicine and the numbers, the disparate numbers in terms of mortality rates, time to get into the emergency room, even some of the disparate deaths from overdoses had to do with the scarcity of some of these primary resources, the plight of community hospitals in rural areas that have closed at an, at an unbelievable rate. All of this is, is important and, and, and pertinent. What comes to mind is virtual care, virtual care, virtual care might end up being the biggest remedy, the biggest salve for the, this wound that both the availability of subspecialties that are not likely to migrate to the rural areas will be increased with virtual care. And even primary care can be now provided much more effectively in rural areas where there's low de population density and large geographical uh, distances. So this is actually one of the factors that I think a company like NextGen with our technology uh, has been part of the solution and, and uh, helped significantly with uh, mitigating these, uh, uh, this element. And then uh, obviously lots of additional fascinating information and data would love to, uh, to keep going. We had some interesting thoughts on uh, practice ownership and the structures around that. We, we may do that in a, in a future podcast. So 
uh, definitely uh, stay tuned. I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us today and obviously thank my colleagues, Dr. Marty Lustig and Graham Brown for sharing their insights and perspectives. Uh, If you've enjoyed today's topic, consider subscribing to our podcast. This is Dr. Betty Rabinowitz, Connection Healthcare. Have a great day.